The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Those of you who are visiting or haven't been with us, just so you know, our regular schedule has been. We're going through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter by chapter, from the very beginning. We started in chapter 1, verse 1, and going all the way through, we're already now in chapter 15. We're going through it just as the Apostle Paul wrote it, and that's the way he intended it to be read by his church. Uh, the Apostle Paul uh, was, he found that church, he started that church um, early on in his ministry. That testimony is recorded in Acts 18, where he just went into that city, cold turkey, led by God's spirit, and the, armed with the gospel, preached to a bunch of pagans, and God did his work, opened hearts and minds, and people started believing, and Paul started organizing them into a local church and spent actually about a year and a half with them, and then he left and has been gone now three years when he writes this first letter to the Corinthians. And over the course of those two to three years in his absence, that young church, young immature church, who knows how much of the Old Testament they had. They didn't have much of the New Testament at their disposal. So they did have limited doctrine or information compared to the Bible we have. So they had some struggles. Uh, they were sinners. And uh, they needed some instruction. They began to compromise in some of their behavior. They had some wrong thinking because they're sinners, but also because of the culture in which they lived and they carried over wrong practices and thinking from their pagan culture and mixed those in the church. And as a result, it got really bad. This local church called the Church at Corinth was very uh, dysfunctional and it was blatantly obvious and it was even spilling out outside the walls of the local church, which probably was in a home or two, into the community where even unbelievers in the community were scratching their head like, who are these crazy Jesus followers? They've got some weird antics and beliefs going on. And so Paul had heard about that from several different sources, and he knew it It needed immediate attention. So he wrote this long epistle, 16 chapters, 1 Corinthians 16 chapters, one of the longest epistles in the New Testament. And as we have seen firsthand experience, primarily all of it that we've read up to this point has been Paul dealing with their problems, confronting their problems, trying to solve their problems. It's been a confrontational letter. But that's what God called Paul to do as an apostle, as a pastor, as a shepherd of that church. And it's what they needed. They needed some corrective action, and they needed it from an authoritative source, and that was the Apostle Paul. And so now we get to chapter 15, where Paul's going to deal with a new topic and another problem. Up to this point, we've already seen early on, uh, the first problem he dealt with was division and cliques they had in the church, then incest that was blatant that they were boasting about. Then they were suing each other. Then there were major marriage problems and under, uh, misunderstanding about marriage and celibacy. Much of that carrying over from their worldview from a pagan Greek mindset. Then they had problems of blatant idolatry and abusing their freedoms in Christ and some going out even visiting the strip joints and the bars and pagan idolatry, calling themselves Christians. Paul had to put a stop to that. Then they were abusing the communion service when they did get together. They were abusing the communion service, the Lord's tables. They gathered as a local church. It was so bad. Two of the egregious sins they were committing on a grand scale was, one, they were 
uh, being selfish and taking communion and the love feast before other Christians even got there out of a total lack of courtesy for fellow believers. And then the worst one was uh, they were taking the communion wine and, and indulging on it to the point where they were getting drunk in church at communion. We already talked about that. Mind-boggling. At no time during these sins that Paul delineates does he ever question whether they're Christians or not. He never does. As a matter of fact, he just continues to assume that they are because he keeps calling them brethren, my brethren, my brethren, my brethren. He's going to do that again in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3. He just, he's assuming they're believers, which is a great reminder for us. Christians can get involved and mixed up and indulge in the most heinous of sins. Really, it's a good reminder for us. If you're a Christian, you're a sinner who is saved by grace. And then we had 12 through 14 that we just finished, and that was a public spectacle as well, where there were some who were haughty and arrogant and putting the wrong priority on showy gifts, like speaking in tongues, and that created all kinds of division, looking down their nose on others who didn't have the showy gifts. And so Paul spent a lot of time addressing the spiritual gifts, and now he makes the transition to 1 Corinthians 15, where we find ourselves. So let's go ahead and look at 1 Corinthians 15. I have a handout for you there. We're just going to look at uh, the first... 11 verses. This is a long chapter. Look at 58 verses in 1 Corinthians 15. It's all about one theme. Resurrection. This is a doctrinal explanation of the resurrection. The meaning of the resurrection. Not just the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, that's not even the main point. It's just the concept or the reality or the possibility of resurrection itself. Resurrection for you, for me, for anyone in the afterlife. That was the issue at hand. So this is a long chapter. Uh, we're not going to rush through it because it's so important, especially the beginning part that talks about the gospel. But today we're just looking at the first 11 verses. I broke it up into three main points of emphasis to help us go through it systematically. We'll probably finish the first point maybe today, which is really an introduction to the rest of the chapter. It's so important. You're going to see that as we go through it. But I just call it Paul's. Paul defines the gospel in verses 1 through 11 because that's what he does. Paul defines the gospel. So let me go ahead and read 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 1 through 11 again. Paul says, now I make known to you, brethren. Now I'm going to tell you, I'm going to remind, really it's, I'm going to remind you what you already know about brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, assuming that you are Christians. I'm taking it, I'm assuming the best for you. I'm going to make known to you, I'm going to literally, I'm going to define for you the gospel. I'm going to remind you of the gospel, the good news, the gospel, definite article, something very specific that he's talking about, the gospel, the one which I preached to you, you can read about it in Acts chapter 18, the one that I preached to you when I came here evangelizing four years ago, that same gospel which also you received, you welcomed it when I preached to you. In which also you stand, it's the very foundation of your life, or so you claim it is, by which also you were saved because it's the only thing that can save a sinner is the content of the gospel. That is, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless, of course, you believed in vain. It is possible to believe the gospel in vain, and as a result, it's null and void. It's ineffectual. Verse 3, 4, and here it is. Here is the gospel. Here is its content. Here is its definition. Very simple. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's it. That is the gospel. And he goes on, verse 5, and that 
Jesus appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren or believers, men and women, at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep or died. Then he appeared to James. Not James the apostle, James the half-brother of Jesus, who was formerly a doubter. Then he also appeared to the apostles, and last of all, as to an untimely born one, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Here Paul is defining the gospel. This is so incredibly important. So Paul ends up talking about the gospel and one major uh, major component of the gospel, which is resurrection. Resurrection is a part of the gospel, the truth of the resurrection. Uh, and so that's what the most this chapter is about: is uh, resurrection, the reality of resurrection. If you were to simplify this entire chapter, a very large chapter, and had to pinpoint what is the problem, what is the issue that Paul's trying to deal with and explain. Look at verse 12. That's the problem. Verse 12 is the problem. Why is Paul even bringing this up? Because this problem is totally different than all the other problems in chapters 1 through 14. Because all the chapter, uh, the problems we just mentioned in chapters 1 through 14 were behavioral problems. 1 Corinthians 15 is a problem. It's not a behavioral problem. It is a doctrinal issue. And he confronts it head on. And here was the doctrinal issue problem. Verse 12 he summarizes the problem. Um, now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how how do some among you say, how is it, this is the problem, I have heard by testimony, first-hand testimony, that some of you, and he specifically says some, so it's not all, it could be a minority, it could be an influential minority, we know it's influential because he mentions that later, even if it was just a very few, it is dangerous. It is potentially damning to the local church. How in the world? If you believe that Jesus, you believe the gospel, which at the heart of it was the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you claim to be Christians and followers of the resurrected Jesus Christ, how in the world are there some of you at the Christian church in Corinth who claim to be believers, and yet you have this problem? How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? That's the problem that he's trying to deal with. So there were some professing Christians in the Corinthian church who professed and were talking and making it known that they denied the reality of bodily resurrection after this life. They believe, even though they said they were Christians. And Paul's saying that, that does not even make sense. What in the world is going on? How could a professing Christian say that there is no bodily resurrection after this life? Well, Corinth was in the Greek culture, and it had a legacy, that Greek area and culture had a legacy of 500 plus years of the Greek philosophers, and almost a uniform worldview in terms of what they thought about the afterlife. Two main things that the Greeks taught, that the Corinthians as pagans, they were born and raised in, they went to the schools, the public education, their parents, indoctrinated them with a very specific idea about what happens to the human being when it dies. So, and two main truths reigned supreme in the Greek world, the Greek culture. Uh, one was that anything that's physical is evil. 
Only the invisible and, and that which you cannot see, the spiritual, is not evil. So it was a dualistic view of, of humanity, of anthropology. And that's what Plato taught. As a matter of fact, your body is evil. And one of the goals in life and all of eternity is to get uh, freed from the shackles of your physical body. That's what Plato believed and the Greeks believed. So the physical body is evil. So there's no one, and that, if that's true, that's a spiritual truth, that's a metaphysical truth, the Greeks believe. And so therefore, uh, if the goal is to be freed from the shackles of your physical evil body, when you die, you don't get another physical body, even if it's a resurrection body, because if the resurrection body is a physical body, and therefore, because it's physical and made of matter, it is evil. That's what they believed. And so who knows what they believed about Jesus' resurrection body. Maybe they thought it was like a, a resurrected uh, spiritual body of some sort. And that's what actually what some religions believe, quasi-Christian religions. Yeah, Jesus rose, but it wasn't in a physical body. He rose in a body, but it wasn't a physical body as we know it. It was a spiritual physical body. It was like a phantom. It was like a ghost. It was like, And you're like, what? No, it was physical. He ate food. He had fellowship. Touch me and see that I have flesh and bones in his resurrected body. So the Greeks despised and denied the idea of the physical body after life. They just categorically rejected that. And some of these Corinthians carried that over from their old worldview and were trying to mix that in with their Christian beliefs. And so that is at the heart of the problem here. So it was a dualistic view. And so you got uh, Plato teaching that, and then you got Aristotle who came after also um, implementing some of that view, tweaking some things, changing things. But he didn't change a whole lot because Aristotle, who was so influential in philosophy and world history and Greek culture and the, this part of the world for so long, he denied the immortality of the soul. So uh, kind of when you die, you just kind of go into nothingness. So in effect, Aristotle denied the physical resurrection body as well. And so this was uh, the problem. Paul has to let them know because these pagan uh, Greeks, they weren't raised on the Old Testament. They didn't have the Old Testament scriptures. They are Gentiles. So if they had the Old Testament, they could have gone to even the Pentateuch, the Torah, where it speaks of resurrection. Uh, Abraham was looking forward to the resurrection, resurrection life. He believed that his son, if he killed him, would be resurrected. Uh, that's the rock bed of Jewish faith. That was the rock bed of the promise of the coming of the Messiah. That was the foundation of what Christianity was built upon. Resurrection life, glorified life, perfect eternal uh, humanity as one unit, body, soul, spirit, all one, including the physical. So uh, from a biblical point of view, the physical body is not evil. So that's practical for us when we have a habitual sin or things that we do that are sinful. And sometimes our inclination is to blame our body. Oh, it's my body. When I get rid of this body, when I get rid of it. Well, that's not the, it's not getting rid of your body. That's not the problem of your sin. Not the outside, the physical body. It's what's on the inside. Our prayer should be, boy, I can't wait till I get rid of what's on the inside. Indwelling sin, as Paul said in Romans 7. I need to be liberated from the indwelling sin. The immaterial, invisible, spiritual, yet real, indwelling sin. So you could cut your hand off literally, and that ain't going to keep you from sinning. Even though Jesus said to do that metaphorically speaking. It was a metaphor. He's trying to make a point. Deal with your sin in a drastic way or manner. He didn't mean it literally. So your body, your physical body is not evil. 
As a matter of fact, we can please God in our physical body by virtue of our service and the things that we do. What we have to reign in is not on the outside necessarily as much as on the inside, our mind, how we think, and guarding against the indwelling sin that is in every single one of us. And that's where the civil war lies on the inside. So this is the mindset, this is the worldview that Paul has to combat. And he, he spends a lot of time, and he is very specific, trying to ingrain this truth into their brain. Uh, just look at the background to reiterate this truth. I, I do want you to go into Acts chapter 17, because there you see the Greek philosophy that reigned supreme in Athens, Greece, also in Corinth. And it's it was typical of how they thought. And what they thought of Christians and this idea of resurrection truth. Uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Paul is on a missionary journey. He's got his team with him and he's going around, around into different cities. He's now in uh, the Greek area and Greek culture and he's preaching the gospel to pagans, Gentiles primarily, again, who don't have Old Testament truth about the resurrection of the body. So many of them are just totally ignorant of that idea. And Acts 17, verse 2, uh, verse 1, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia and then Thessalonica, uh, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So he goes to Thessalonica, goes to a synagogue. Verse 2 is absolutely important. It says, and according to Paul's custom, according to Paul's custom, as in other words, this is what Paul always did when he went traveling as a missionary and going into cities, cold turkey, preaching. This is what he always did. This was his pattern. This was his habit. He didn't deviate. He didn't acclimate to the culture, contextualize. He did the same thing. He was one. He just had incredible focus on what he did and what he was commissioned by God to do, as was his custom. And you read through the book of Acts. It was his custom. This is what he always did. Well, what was that? Well, according to Paul's custom, he went always to the synagogue first. Even if the, in a pagan culture, he's always looking for the synagogue. They have 12 men who are Jews. They've got to find that synagogue. And many cities did not. And then if it wasn't, then he'd go ahead and start maybe start doing some open-air preaching or personal evangelism. But it was always to the synagogue first, according to his custom. And he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them. Not, get this, he reasoned with them. So it was intellectual. It was a conversation about thoughts, about truth, about metaphysical realities, spiritual truth. And he reasoned them. He used logic. But notice, it doesn't say that he reasoned with them using man-made philosophy, Aristotelian philosophy, Platonic philosophy, natural theology, none of that. What did he reason with as he's talking to unbelievers? It says he reasoned with them from the scriptures. What He used his brain. He used logic. But the content of his dialogue was always the scriptures, divine revelation, the truth of almighty God. That's what Paul did. He never deviated from that, no matter who his audience was, whether they were uh, Jews or Gentiles. He reasoned with God's truth, divine revelation from the scriptures using the word of God in all three forms current in his day. Would have been the Old Testament, the Word of God, spoken immediate revelations he received from God, that was the Word of God, and anything that he got from other apostles that was divine revelation, maybe even written scriptures that he had in his possession that other apostles had written at that time. But the content is always the same as you read throughout the book of Acts. Paul preached the Word of God, reasoned with the scriptures. That's how we witness to people. That was his custom. From the scriptures, verse three, explaining and giving evidence. What did he focus on in the scriptures as he was talking to unbelievers? Was it uh, election? Well, you've got to be election. Otherwise, you can't be saved and you'll never know if you're elect. So you'll never know you'll be saved. No. I don't ever remember Paul talking about election with an unbeliever. Or their view of creation 
Or what do you think about the environment and pollution? Or what do you think about the political agenda of the candidates that are about to be? No, he was very focused. From the scriptures, the content, verse 3, was always explaining and giving evidence that the Christ, it was all about the Messiah, it was always about Jesus. What was Paul had a one-track mind. He's always talking about Jesus, always about Jesus. Who he is, what he did, why it matters. So much so at the end of his life, he summarized his ministry, even in 1 Corinthians uh, 1, 18 and 19. And then also in chapter 2, he says, uh, I didn't come with words of wisdom and the philosophy of your Greek philosophers. I came and I preached only the gospel of Jesus Christ. He already said that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Only Christ. And then he summarizes his ministry in Galatians six fourteen. May I boast in nothing else save Christ and him crucified. He had one message. It's a great reminder for Christians. Well, evangelizing is so hard. What do I talk about? Jesus. It's not hard. Well, what about him? Well, who he is and what he did for you and how he changed your life and how he saved you from sin. That's what Paul did. Explaining from the scriptures, giving evidence from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah, that he had to suffer, that he had to rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Now, notice he is talking to Greek Speaking Thessalonians in a Greek culture who are raised on the Greek philosophers. And he's telling them from scripture about the Messiah who must suffer and rise again from the dead. And now the terminology that Paul uses consistently in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, the book of Acts, two words put together, raise from the dead. Literally, living corpses is the way it came across to them. Doesn't that sound scary, gooey, gross? Living corpses? This was foreign to them. Living corpses? Jesus became a living corpse? I mean, that sounds like a, like a mummy coming out of the grave. They were baffled. They were shocked by that terminology. And that's what he's saying. Rising again. This Messiah must rise again from the dead. He's preaching the resurrection. Some of them were persuaded in verse 4. Some were not. Some become angry and jealous. They chased him out of town. So Paul runs to the next town. Verse 10. He goes to Berea. He preaches the gospel. He's preaching from the scriptures. They're examining the scriptures to see what he says is true. He's preaching not philosophy. He's preaching the word of God, it says in verse 13. And he proclaimed it. The word of God, divine revelation, focusing on Jesus Christ, who he is, what he did. As was his custom. And notice it doesn't matter about their culture, who they are. He's got the same message for every person regardless of their cultural backgrounds, their language, their gender, their religion, their, yeah, their religion, their politics. It doesn't matter. Paul's got the same powerful, life-changing message. He proclaimed the word of God, verse 13. And then he leaves Berea. No, and then he goes to Athens. This is a key chapter. Now, verse 16, now, Paul was waiting for them at Athens. His spirit was being provoked. He's all by himself. He goes into this massive city that's world-renowned. It's full of pagan uh, religion. It's filled with idols publicly in the city. Paul sees this hill full of idols. It says that he is provoked within his spirit. That means he was angry. What was he angry about? The satanic deception that has taken over the whole world, the blindness that is there, their need for the gospel. That apart from Christ, they would die in their sin and be condemned for all eternity in hell. His heart was broken and he was angry over the lie about it. He was provoked in his spirit. Paul's attitude towards other religions, competing religions and false religion. It wasn't an ecumenical spirit. It was anger. Because it was of the devil and it damned souls for eternity. That's the terminology it was provoked within himself. 
And so he takes the opportunity, verse 17, so he was reasoning. There it is again. This does not mean speaking philosophy from Plato and Aristotle. It just means that he was thinking, using logic, having a logical discussion and discourse, talking back and forth, but the content of his reasoning was the scriptures. And he never deviated from that. I already said that. That was his custom. Reasoning in the scriptures with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. Verse 18, and also some, here it is, the Gentiles end of the picture, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, there it is, began conversing with him, talking to him. So Paul starts talking to these guys. Oh, here's some... uh, Aristotelian and Platonic and Socratic philosophers. They're totally pagan. They don't know anything probably about the Old Testament. He starts talking to these guys. What's he talking about? Well, he didn't deviate. He's talking about Jesus and sin and the resurrection and the gospel and maybe his testimony in there. And he has an ongoing conversation in verse 18. It says so much so that it got to a point where these philosophers who thought they were erudite and elite and educated And they look down their nose at everybody else as a peon. And that's their attitude towards Paul. So they're listening to Paul and everything he has to say about Christianity. And they conclude in the middle of verse 18, some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? That's what they thought of Paul and his gospel message about Jesus and the resurrection. This is idiocy. This guy is so unsophisticated, he doesn't know Greek philosophy like we do. Poor chap, poor lad. I don't know if they had an English accent, but anyway. What would this idle babbler wish to say? Others of the Greeks, well, he seems to be, here it is. He seems to be a proclaimer. He's not into conversation. He is proclaiming. That is one way. That is authoritative. That's giving and issuing an edict or a decree from Almighty God, Creator on high. He is a proclaimer. That's distinctive. Because what do they do? Well, they just sat around and conversed and talked and went back and forth like ping pong. Ding, 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 ding. All day long, they didn't keep score because they weren't trying to accomplish anything. That's just how they passed the time. That's what this text says. And you never get to a point or universal binding, dogmatic, authoritative, black and white, objective truth. That's the point. So they're like, wow, this guy's strange. He, he seems to be a proclaimer, which is odd, but also of strange deities. What in the world? There's one God. Everybody knows there's a zillion gods. And this Jesus fella, he sounds rather peculiar. More than a man? That's what they're talking about. So that's what they accuse Paul of. Um, well, why did they say that? Well, because what was Paul preaching? Because Paul was preaching Jesus, and here it is, and the resurrection. They just thought that was weird. Man, we have never heard this stuff before. The resu- Really? You believe that when you die, your body comes back to life? The, well, no, the, the body's evil. The Bible doesn't, or the, the body doesn't come back to life. And Paul says, yeah, actually it does. They just couldn't get their brain wrapped around that. And so verse 20 says, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Man, we have never heard this before. Plato didn't talk about this. Socrates didn't talk about it. Aristotle didn't talk about it. All our philosophers didn't talk about it. So we want to know what these things mean. Here, talk more to you. Here, come, let's go sip some tea. Let's go into the area Gopas in the marketplace and let's talk in dialogue further. We are very intrigued by this crazy information. Verse 21, now all the Athenians and strangers uh, and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. That's all they did. And so then Paul goes on to preach. He preaches the gospel. He is laser focused. He preaches about Jesus. He preaches about sin. He preaches about the good news that it's a universal need for all people. He concludes 
uh, by calling all men to repentance. No one has an excuse. Verse 30, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent. Well, they were Greeks and they didn't have the Old Testament. They didn't know. No. They have general revelation and now they have the truth of the gospel. They are now accountable. Once anybody, regardless of how uneducated and ignorant and unexposed they are, once they hear the truth of the Bible, they are now accountable. And the will of God is that they would repent and believe in the gospel. And that's what Paul makes very clear in verse 30. All people everywhere should repent. You know, that's this is so helpful because that's been my strategy. God's allowed me to go to different places in the world. Okay, I'm going to go uh, to Mexico. Wow, how do you share spiritual truth? What do they need to hear? Well, they need to hear about Jesus, the Savior, and that they are sinners and that they can be rescued by Jesus, this gracious, merciful Savior, and that he died on the cross and absorbed the Father's wrath that was meant for them. And if they can't work for it, but if they just believe that message about who Jesus is and what he did and cry out to him and acknowledge their sin and ask him to come save them, he will. And he's done that. That's the message that Mexican people need in Mexico. Then I went to Ukraine and I did meet some unbelievers in Ukraine. Well, what do Ukrainian people need to hear, especially unbelievers? Well, they need to hear that Jesus is the Savior and that they are uh, in sin and they need to be saved from their sin. Otherwise, a holy God will judge them. And that's the bad news. And the good news is that God creator loves people. And he loves sinners and he sent Jesus to save sinners from their sin and that Jesus went to the cross willingly and he absorbed the wrath of the father. And then he was buried and he rose again from on high and he's calling sinners to come to him as the gracious, merciful savior. And if they entrust uh, their life to him and ask them, Jesus, to come into their life and forgive them of their sin, they can be rescued. And, saved. and that's what the message of Ukraine needs to be. Then I went to Siberia. Guess what message they needed to hear in Siberia? I heard testimonies of how men, atheistic communists, got saved. As they gave testimony after testimony to me personally. Well, you know, some Christian guy came in and he told me about Jesus, that he was the God man and that he was the savior sent from God on high and that I was a sinner. And I knew I was a sinner because I was in jail and I was guilty and I knew it. And I felt guilty about it. And he convicted me and he said, the Bible said that I'm a sinner and I need to be saved from my sin. And I can't save myself from sin. And only Jesus and God can save me from my sin. And his only plan is through the death of Jesus, where the father poured out his wrath on Jesus as a substitute for sinners like me. And that he was buried and raised again and ascended on high. And he's seeking out and crying out for sinners to come and repent and believe in him that they might be saved. And that's what I did. And that's what I got saved. Wow, that was the same message I heard in Mexico and in Ukraine. And then when I went to Africa with all these African kids, I was like, okay, I was in a panic. What do I tell these African kids? What do they need to know to be saved? You will never guess. All we did is we told them about Jesus in the Bible and who he was and that he was the God man. And he came into this world to rescue sinners and they were sinners. You, I'm not a sinner. Yeah, you are, you little seven-year-old Ghana African boy. You are a sinner. And then his friends would chime in and say, yeah, you're a sinner. Just like Coach Cliff said. Anyway, um, and we're all sinners, and I'm a sinner. That's what the Bible says, and that's what God the Creator says. And we can't save ourselves from sin. We need to be rescued from sin, from without, by Almighty God. He's the only way. And God hates sin. He must punish sin. And He did punish sin. He punished sin by crucifying His holy, blessed Son, Jesus Christ, where Jesus absorbed the wrath of the Father that was intended for you and for me. And He was buried, and He rose again. He ascended on high. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And He's calling out with His gospel to save sinners even today. And you can be saved from your sin. And you know what? Some of them did. They're in Ghana, Africa. It's amazing. It's the same gospel. Paul never deviated. It's the same message. The same gospel. It's the greatest need. The unbelief. It's the only need, true need, that the lost have. That really matters. 
That's the gospel message. And so that's why Paul could say, you've heard the truth. You are now accountable. You can't claim ignorance anymore. And as a result, God is declaring all men everywhere who hear this gospel should repent. Verse 30. That's why you can't let people, when you're witnessing to them, and they've heard the gospel, and then they start thinking of all these arguments to try to stump you up and deviate and uh, get out of accountability, and they don't want to believe. And inevitably, rather quickly, after you give the gospel and say that they're a sinner, and they can only be saved by Jesus the Savior, who is Lord in heaven, then quickly and immediately they say, well, what about those people who haven't heard yet over in wherever Africa? Well, I went to Africa and I told some of them. But anyway, back to your point. Uh, you've heard it. You have heard it. So you're accountable according to Scripture. Let God take care of everybody else. They're his creation. He loves his creation. And he will take care of them. But you, So you need to stay laser-focused like Paul in the conversation on the person you're talking to. That you're now accountable according to God. You've heard the truth about Jesus. Now you must answer the question, what do you do with Jesus? What do you do with the gospel? You will stand before Almighty God now. You will be judged according to the gospel in the scriptures. You're without excuse. And you call them to repentance. So this is what they heard, these Greeks. This is new. This is strange. This is weird. This is Babel. And what is their conclusion? Well, when Paul said that, Verse 31, and then he says, because God has fixed a day in which God will judge this world in righteousness, every human soul. How is he going to judge them? By what standard? Well, he's going to judge them through a man, that's the Lord Jesus, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof. There is proof for Christianity to all humanity by raising him from the dead. The resurrection is the proof that Christianity is true. The resurrection is the standard by which God will judge every soul. Well, you can imagine they're hearing this and there was different responses in the crowd. It was a mixed crowd. Verse 32 says that when Paul said that, and when they heard especially the truth of the resurrection of the dead, a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Greeks. So when they heard the truth of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. There it is. That was the first response and it was probably going on while he's preaching and teaching and talking interrupting him sneering who knows what they were doing but it was audible you could hear it it was an interruption it was a total lack of respect it was condescending it was arrogant it was evil to the core this is absurd that's what that means sneer that's not all that happened they'll listen to this but others said Huh. Some were intrigued and said, we shall hear you again concerning. I want to hear more. Now, that person could either be sincere or insincere, but you give them the benefit of the doubt. If somebody says, yeah, I want to hear more, then you, you tell them more. And you keep talking and you keep talking and you keep till you answer every last question until they don't want to hear anymore. So there are two responses. Sneering. We'll have none of this. And those who want to hear more, those who are intrigued and curious. But there was another response. Verse 33. So Paul went out of their mis- mission accomplished. Mission accomplished, not that every soul got saved. Mission accomplished, the gospel was clearly disseminated to everyone who was there. That's the mission accomplished. And so Paul left their midst. Verse 34, here's the good news. But some men, some men, some men, maybe a minority of people. Some men joined him and they believed. Isn't that awesome? They believed this this gospel, this strange New, weird, non-intuitive gospel that comes from without, from Almighty God, by way of divine special revelation. They believed it, among whom also were two or some influential men in the community. 
but they were the minority. So there's three responses. You're always going to get three responses, really, when you go and evangelize unbelievers, right? Some are going to smear, sneer and mock you or whatever and just, this is absurd. Some are going to say, oh, wow, okay, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, wow, whoa, I need to think about that more. We always get that response usually when you've got a group of people. And then every once in a while, man, you get the jackpot and you get one on your, on your line and your hook and you reel them in. Well, yippee, been fishing for three weeks, got skunked, finally got one. And that's what happened with Paul. Then he goes into Corinth and he preached and then verse eight, chapter 18, verse one. After these things, he left Athens and then he went to Corinth after that experience. Again, it's still a Greek culture. They believe the same thing. And he found a Jew named Aquila, native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. So he came to them and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them. Uh, verse here it is verse four as was his custom and he was reasoning not with philosophy in the synagogue every sabbath from the scriptures said chapter 17 with the word of god said chapter 17 trying to persuade both greeks and jew how do you witness to a hindu I, somebody asked me that question one time they're different well yeah well yeah they're different how do you witness to a hindu? same way with the gospel well, they don't believe in sin. Too bad. You you preach it anyway, right? Actually, they do believe in sin. What happens is you preach the truth about sin in the Bible. And you're so you're preaching the Bible. That's the living word of God. And it goes in their ears and in their soul. And according to Hebrews 4, it pierces down to the deepest recesses of their soul. And they're and then the Holy Spirit comes in. And he works the word of God into their soul, pressing it down on their conscience, on their spirit, on their heart, convicting them of their sin. And so all the while they could be in denial saying, well, I don't believe in sin. I don't believe in sin. I don't believe it. Well, actually, they do. That's the job of the Holy Spirit and the truth of the word of God, not our job. We just use the truth, give the truth, preach the gospel. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. It separates us from God, our creator. Jesus is the solution. That is good news. He wants to rescue sinners. Believe in his gospel. You can be rescued. Our job is not convincing them. Our job is being good stewards of the truth of the gospel. Don't be worrying about their response. Somebody, the worst critics who can defy you to your face when you are evangelizing seven, nine, 18 years later, 50 years later, could come to know Jesus. Happens all the time. Can't ever walk away from an evangelistic situation where you faithfully disseminated the whole gospel and say, oh man, nobody got saved. Oh, I'm a failure. Oh, it didn't work. Oh, they're never going to say. That that's not true. It's still doing its work. The Holy Spirit's doing its work. God's word never returns void. God has to providentially work on their hearts in his time. And it could take five years. It could take 55 years. It could take 85 years. And everything that we do contributes to that, whether planting seeds or watering or providing fertilizer or nurturing and protecting anything that we can do to nurture the gospel that is now in their soul. So anyway, back to Corinth. So Paul goes in, he starts with the Jews, they're unbelievers, he's preaching the gospel, he's using the Old Testament, he's talking about the Messiah. Uh, verse 5 says, when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely, here it is, to the word, not philosophy, that's divine revelation, including scripture, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah, and that he must suffer, die, and rise again. So that is his message. Go back to 1 Corinthians now. Because I wanted to highlight that. that This was Paul's pattern. That's what he did. That's how he preached. Uh, That was his calling. That was his priority. Was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Where did he get it from? Well, he was just following his Lord and Savior. Jesus did the same thing. What was Jesus' calling in life? He wasn't a do-gooder. Jesus came as the Savior. Jesus came first and foremost to preach the gospel. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15 summarizes the very essence and the priority of Jesus' ministry. And it wasn't, Jesus came to start a soup kitchen. Jesus came to be a social worker. Jesus came to be a do-gooder. No, Jesus came preaching and teaching the gospel. It's what he did. It's the priority. It's what the greatest need of humanity is, is salvation from sin so they can know God, their creator. And they can't deviate from that. And that's all you see from Jesus. Every once in a while, yeah, Jesus did do good works every once in a while. He'd heal people. You know, but it's kind of interesting. Every once in a while, and this happened more than once, Jesus would actually heal somebody. And strangely, he would say, yeah, now go announce it to everybody. As a matter of fact, he'd say just the opposite. Shh, don't tell anybody that I healed you. He said that repeatedly. And it was like, why, why, why did he do that? Well, because Jesus came for one purpose. It wasn't to come and do miracles. Jesus didn't come. He wasn't born to heal people. That's, that was not his ultimate purpose. It was very clear. He came to die. He came to die for sinners. And that's how he rescued them from sin. That was his ultimate goal. So during his ministry, his public life, he hadn't died yet. So he hadn't even fulfilled his one and only main purpose for coming in the first place. And so if he did a miracle of healing prior to that, he did not want people who got healed going and proclaiming, oh, you can get healed by this guy. And that's all they think about. And then that becomes the priority, meaning, and message of Jesus' life and ministry, that he just heals people. That is not Jesus' uh, point of emphasis in his ministry. There were fallen, sinful human beings in the Old Testament that could heal and did heal people. They were not the Savior. They were not the Messiah. He didn't want people to get a confused message. Miracles were simply to authenticate that he was the Savior, he was the Messiah, who came for one purpose, and that was to die. And it was to die for sin and absorb the wrath of the Father on behalf of sinners. And so that's Paul's point. So let's, now, with that in mind, let's look at the first point that Paul has in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Under Paul defines the gospel, Paul reiterates, reiterates, uh, reiterates the details of the gospel, or I'm sorry, the uh, the meaning of the gospel. So I just want to briefly quick it. Uh, verses 1 and 2 are kind of, a, he's laying the foundation uh, for the entire chapter, and especially the purpose of the gospel. He says, now I make known to you, brethren. In other words, I'm reminding you how you got saved four years ago. You didn't get saved by your good works. You didn't get saved by your knowledge, even though some of you think you did. So that's why he has to remind them. I make known to you, again, I'm reminding you, brethren, the gospel, the gospel, routinely, forevermore, wherever I go. I did it in Wheaton about three weeks ago at a conference I was teaching at, very, just back to the basics, asking these professing Christians, what is the gospel? Anybody, anytime somebody wants to join GBF, I ask them, what is the gospel? Anytime I teach a Sunday school class or a seminar or anywhere, somewhere, at some point, I'm going to ask, what is the gospel if they're professing Christians? And inevitably, uh, we are confused on the gospel. So this, this is Paul. He, he he knows believers need to be reminded of the simple gospel in terms of its content, but also what a priority is. And that's why he's doing this. When, in a counseling situation, this is what they teach in biblical counseling, and I totally agree with it. When you get when you have somebody come to you for spiritual counseling and they have a problem, whatever it is, um, I have this problem, that problem, I have a marriage problem, I have a kid's problem, I have a stealing problem, I have a this problem, that, that. You know where you always start? 
you first start by getting their testimony to see if they know Jesus Christ. And the way you do that, the clearest way to do it is you ask them, what is the gospel? Do you understand the gospel? And have you assimilated the gospel in your life? And many times, uh, the counselee, they don't know what the gospel is. Uh, yeah, the gospel, it's uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, no, that's not, I've had that happen. Uh, the gospel is the Bible. That's another common one. What, what's the, before we get to your specific problem, tell me what the, the gospel is. Well, that's the Bible. Mm, can you explain a little bit? And then you realize, ooh, they don't know the gospel. So that's a great way to diagnose where we're at. So before you get to their surface problem of, I can't get along with my colleagues at work. Yeah, I know why. But anyway, let's talk about something more important. Let's clarify the gospel and what it means to you in your life. And then actually what you're doing many times is actually evangelizing an unbeliever. They might even think that they are saved and maybe they are self-deceived. Or they just lack information for whatever reason. It happens all the time. So that's one of the beauties of that I learned 25 years ago from biblical counseling that don't make any assumptions. And Paul is not making any assumptions, even though he's, you know, commending them for their original belief. He wants to be sure that they understand the most fundamental thing to being a Christian, and that is the content of the gospel. I need to remind you of that. Are we agreed? We can't have this discussion unless we're all on the same page. We're not going to make any headway. And so that's what he's doing. So I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you when I came to Corinth the first time, which also that gospel about Jesus' death and resurrection for sin, that message, which you also received, that means they welcomed it. At least the ones in the church did. Some sneered, some mocked, some ran away. Some even tried to persecute Paul. But he's talking to the ones who welcomed it. You were favorable to the message of the gospel. So he's commending them for that. And then get this, he says, the gospel in which also that you stand. What does that mean? Well, the gospel message is the foundation of your life. The most important thing in the world is that you know Jesus personally and that he saved you from your sin. And that is actually the foundation and the rock bed of how you live life every day. And no matter what storm comes up against you, whether it's financial or relationships or physical suffering, if you truly are standing on the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can stem the tide and actually survive whatever comes your way in your life. That's God's design of the power of the gospel in your life. That's what he that's what he means, which also you welcomed and which also you stand. It is the most important thing in your life is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything is secondary, no matter what else is coming along in your life. You are always coming back, focusing on your relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the only way to overcome any problems in this life. That's why to this day, I still don't understand how people can live this life as someone who is not a Christian, who doesn't know Jesus Christ. I can't imagine doing that. How in the world do you overcome the vicissitudes and the challenge and the suffering and the trials and the questions of this life if you don't have a personal relationship with the God-man Jesus Christ? I don't know how it's done. That's why Paul says those who try to do it are without hope in this world, he says in Ephesians. At the deepest level, many times they try to hide it, put up the facade, whatever, but deep in their soul, they are without hope. They have no anchor. They have no foundation. They have no footing. They have nothing on which to stand, which the Christian does. We stand solidly on the gospel, don't we? Hey, man, I don't care what was going on in your life last week, the month before, the year before. If you know Jesus, you have a solid rock for your soul. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. He gives a warning in which you stand, by which, verse 2, also you were saved. You were saved. 
Because you believe, how does a person get saved? Well, it's not by your own works. Nothing you can do, nothing I can do. It's only what God did, it's only what Jesus did. Those are the only works that matter. How do you get saved? Saved from your sin, saved from hell, saved from Satan, saved from this world, saved from death. It's only through the gospel, the content of the gospel. It's all about Jesus and what he did. He is the Savior. He's the only Savior. It's the only way to be saved and have your sins forgiven, believing in the gospel, by which also you were saved. So you Corinthians, if you believed it and you understood it and you comprehended it legitimately, you put your faith in Christ and you have been saved. Your guilt has been washed away. Your sins have been forgiven. You're adopted in the family of God. You're secure in him forever. It's the good news of the gospel. Then he gives this warning, by which also you're saved, if conditionally so, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, if that is, if you continue to persevere, if you continue to believe what I preached to you, if you continue believing in the gospel that I gave to you. Well, what do you mean by that, Paul? Can You mean I'm not saved originally by works, but I can retain my salvation by my good works and hanging in there and persevering and trying? No. He clarifies by the end of the verse in verse 2. He says, well, unless you believed in vain. In other words, At the very beginning, when I came in and when I preached the gospel, did you truly understand what I meant? Did you truly understand the gospel? And did you truly believe it and commit to it and put your faith in Jesus for who he is and what he did? Did you truly legitimately do that? If so, then you have been saved and you stand solidly on the rock of Christ. Yet Paul is fully aware that there are some people who hear the gospel and they believe in vain, which means they don't believe in all, which means they were never saved in the first place. They were never born again in the first place. They were never redeemed, never regenerated, never adopted in the family of God. And they went their merry way thinking maybe that they were saved. They were a Christian, yet they were self-deceived or they had wrong motives or they had a wrong gospel, an insufficient gospel, a polluted gospel or wrong motives or it was done in isolate. There's a zillion Reasons why someone can believe in vain. It's an empty profession of faith. It happens all the time. Paul knows it. So he's, this is a call for self-examination, which he does in chapter 16 as well. Examine yourself to make sure that you are in the faith. And this is a harbinger of that chapter when he says, unless you believed in vain. It could very well be that some of these Corinthians had this gross and egregious immoral behavior because they were not regenerate at all. That is very possible. Jesus predicted it. There's always going to be wolves among the sheep. There's always going to be weeds among the wheat. There's always going to be unbelievers in the midst of believers. Always. And many times you can't tell them apart. And so that was true. The quintessential example is the 12 apostles and Judas, who for three Years walked like an apostle, talked like an apostle, looked like an apostle, looked like a behavior, was given stewardship responsibilities by Jesus, apparently preached the gospel, did miracles in Jesus name. If you can imagine that was entrusted by the apostles so much that he was the treasurer of the group for who knows up to three years, who was allowed to handle the money of the group all the while pilfering it unbeknownst to anybody else until he's finally exposed. And so when Jesus finally exposed Judas, the false believer, who believed in vain, the other 11 apostles at the Last Supper didn't say, yeah, I knew it was him all along. Yeah, I knew about Judas. I saw it. Not one of them. Their response was just the opposite. What? Who is it? They couldn't even guess. As a matter of fact, they were saying, was it me? Peter was so guilt-ridden in John. They're saying, was it me, Lord? Was I the phony? They weren't thinking Judas. That's how dangerous and deceptive unbelief can be. 
And that's why Paul says, boy, you better do some self-evaluation. Every Christian needs to do self-evaluation to make sure that we did not believe in vain. And just in closing, I want us to be reminded of ways that we can believe in vain. This is the whole point of the four soils in the gospel, by the way. There are four categories of people. Only one is legitimate in terms of those who got born again. There are three other categories who heard the gospel, showed an expression of faith at a superficial level, but were never saved in the first place. That is believing in vain. And it was so deceptive. They didn't know that they were unbelievers. That's what's so dangerous and damning and sad. Someone who's in that category who has believed in vain and is not truly regenerate usually doesn't know that they're not saved. They think they are. And we see that clearly in Matthew 17 at the last judgment when everybody stands before the throne of almighty Jesus Christ one by one and Jesus is the judge and he knows all and he discerns the soul. And there will be people at judgment day who say, Lord, 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 they're calling him Lord, Lord. We were believers when we were on earth and Jesus said, no, you weren't. You were never, I never knew you. You know what that means? You were never saved in the first place. In other words, in the words of Paul, you believed in vain. There was something lacking at the time when you said you put your faith in the gospel, whether it was ignorance, self-deception, not a full gospel or the gospel polluted by something else. You had wrong motives, satanic deception, deception and blindness of sin, whatever it was, it happened in vain. And that will be a sad day. And so Paul up front, because he loves his people, he loves his church, he loves his sheep. He is being commanded and commissioned by Almighty God to give them a sober warning before he goes on. Examine yourself and make sure that you haven't believed in vain. Make sure you know the true gospel and the true Jesus. And if you do, you have a rock on which to stand forever because his blessed gospel means good news. With that, we're going to go ahead and close. We're going to go to the Father now and pray and ask him to bless uh, the word of God as we've heard it. Ask the Holy Spirit to apply this to our own life. Bring it to remembrance throughout the week. Those of you who know Jesus Christ personally, we, we just have nothing but cause for rejoicing, don't we? Cause for rejoicing. Uh, he saved us from our sin. We didn't deserve it. We continue to sin, and he continues to love us. He continues to shower us with grace. He continues to forgive us. He continues to let us know that our future is secure. It is un- amazing, mind-boggling. The love and the mercy and the power uh, an amazing truth about the gospel of Jesus. If you know him, that is our security in this life and for all eternity. And we need to give God the glory for that and have rejoicing deep within our heart. Those of you who don't know Jesus Christ, maybe willingly and knowingly, for whatever reason, you haven't heard enough. Maybe some of this information is new to you today. Or maybe some of you thought you were a Christian. Now maybe you're uncertain. And you think you need to explore more, talk more. Get input from somebody else. More prayer. So you could be in a different position. I I pray for you as well. That you will seriously consider what the Apostle Paul and God's word had to say about the gospel. It's the only truth that saves. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for this morning together. The opportunity to worship with the saints, God's people in the local church, your body. God, we thank you for not being a dumb God who doesn't speak anymore, a God who is silent, but a God who speaks. Speaks clearly through your scripture, the word of God, energized by 
power of the Holy Spirit. You've spoken to us today from your word. Thank you for the wonderful, blessed reminder of the gospel. And we echo with Paul, who said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. It is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. God, we celebrate that great reality today. Father, we also pray for those who don't know you. Maybe some, even in our service today, you keep working on their hearts with the truth of your gospel, that you might woo them, set them free, and save them. And God, remind us of those around us who don't know you, that only the, it's the power of the gospel is the only thing that will change their life forever. Help us to be better evangelists wherever we go. We give you all the glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.